0: So here we are, what to say about destruction. As a group of readers, we've known this was coming, but the fact remains that this is the uncomfortable part of the story. We find the accounts of judgment confusing, to say the least. We've spent six weeks in the parts of the story where Jeremiah gives warnings, but the people, they've spent hundreds of years in them. And so I'll offer that the warnings are a good place for us to start. Consider that judgment in Jeremiah is the outworking of ignoring the warnings. God says to them, I've been warning you of what life without me is like for hundreds of years and you seem like you still wanna do that. So, okay, here's what life without me is like. Jeremiah 4, 18 says, your way and your deeds have done these things to you. This is the evil that has come to you because it's bitter, because it has reached your heart. And to this, God says, my pain, my pain, I writhe. The walls of my heart, my heart howls within me. I cannot be still because you've heard, my soul, the sound of the horn, the battle shout. Remember this expression of deep sorrow and pain from God. We'll come back to it later on. Destruction, you see, while terrible, is the logical consequence of their choices. You went after nothingness. You became nothingness. You follow the gods of the sun, moon, and stars who have no life. Your bones will lie before the sun, moon, and stars, lifeless. Jeremiah 8.1 says, at that time, people will take out the bones of Judas' kings, its officials, the priests, the prophets, and Jerusalem's residents from their graves and expose them to the sun, the moon, and all the army of the heavens that they gave themselves to and served and followed and inquired of and bowed down to. Is there a new possibility out the other side of destruction? A possibility of reformation? Yes. But this... This version of life all has to end first. And it could have ended had the people returned when they heard the warnings, but they didn't. So now it will end by allowing all of this to play out to its fullest expression? This is similar to the very difficult choice parents or good friends sometimes have to make when a kid gets in deep with an addiction, to let them make their choices. You are walking down a path that leads to destruction God says. And God can call out about how you got onto that path with your idolatry. God can invite you to return, come down a different path. But ultimately, if you want to walk down that path, then that's the path you're walking down. And the path ends where it ends. God can't change where that path ends. God really is going to let you chase after other gods, and God really is not going to keep providing for and protecting you as you do that. And here's the hard question. Why are we so convinced that God should? Why are we so sure that God is being too harsh or unloving or is in the wrong for the choice to not interfere with the consequences? And I should probably be as clear as I can about the we in that question It's striking how we who are most offended by these types of passages of judgment and destruction tend to be Western, white, so-called enlightened progressive types. Walter Brueggemann in his discussion of Jeremiah notes, do-gooders always imagine there's something to be done that will salvage present arrangements. God has been warning for hundreds of years, this way you are going is unsalvageable. You need to completely turn away from it and return to me. In contrast, those who are oppressed, they tend to nod their heads in understanding at these kinds of passages because they have experienced the depth of evil in the world. They're victims of it. And they hear passages of judgment and they see glimmers of hope within it. Oh, good. Something is eventually coming to end all this. And then the pietist conservatives who see all people as deeply evil They look at these passages and just say, oh, this is what everyone deserves. Everyone else. That group's extremely individual definition of sin, seeing it as a list of somebody's choices to do wrong, has brought about a reaction that minimizes sin and evil. People aren't that bad, so why is God making such a big deal here? And this reaction tends to come from the financially stable, the educated, The slightly too very powerful who find that they, like the people in Jeremiah, are stunned and resentful of a God who would stop intervening and instead allow the consequences of people to play out, even if those consequences bring destruction on people who seem undeserving or are even victims within the system of evil. And this is part of what Jeremiah is up against, a people who are utterly stunned and resentful of God who has allowed destruction to befall them. And the chapters we're in right now give us clues as to why they felt so comfortable, so protected. These chapters reveal how false prophets, priests, and scholars, all in their own way, promoted this version of life that the people were living and also said, we're not that bad. First, false prophets gave false hope. False prophets kept telling the people that God was okay with them. Chapter 4 verse 9 says that when the destruction comes, the priests will be devastated. The prophets will be dumbfounded. They're dumbfounded because they keep prophesying that everything would be fine and something like this would never happen. We are hashtag blessed. Verse 10 goes on and Jeremiah says, oh, Lord Yahweh, really, you've totally deceived this people in Jerusalem by saying there will be peace for you, whereas the sword has reached their throat. But God never said there would be peace for them. The false prophets did. They claimed that was God's message. But it has become so widely accepted, it seems that even Jeremiah isn't totally sure if those are the words of the Lord or messages from these false prophets. Jeremiah is reflecting how the people feel. God, how dare you? We're not that bad. This destruction could shed light on the ways that we have followed false gods or trusted false messages of comfort. This destruction could invite us to lament how far from you we have gone. And for contemporary enlightened readers like us, it could help us understand sin and evil as more serious realities that wage war on the goodness God desires for people and creation, even as we continue to reject a hyper-individualized version of people as super-sinners. But the people don't allow for that insight, and instead their attitude is, God, this destruction is all because you deceived us. The people took comfort in false prophets, then blamed God when those weren't actually the outworkings. Similarly, consider the priests. Comfortable priests condoned compromised worship. These are the people who are supposed to lead Israel in proper worship to God and God alone. But in chapter 7, verse 31, it says, They've built the shrines at Tofet, in Ben-Hinam Canyon to burn their sons and daughters in fire, which I didn't command. It didn't come to my mind. People did not go off and practice idolatry as individuals. We have a lot of individual worship practices nowadays, so we might think about a person going off with their acoustic guitar to sing love songs to a carved piece of wood that they think brings the sun up each morning. That wasn't what idolatrous worship looked like. Instead, the worship primarily expressed itself by the offering of sacrifices, which meant you needed priests to facilitate the sacrifices. And those priests found their livelihood in all of this. They get a cut. And so in the same way that the worship of Yahweh was communal and collective and part of a group identity, the worship of idols was communal. And the priests seemed to have facilitated a mashup of worship to Yahweh and these other gods, compromising on exclusivity, And what is a grievous, stomach-turning reality is that instead of offering sacrifices of animals, Israel began to offer human sacrifices of their own children. God is devastated by this. Israel's story is unique, you might remember, because people are made in God's image. Not to be a servant to God, but to be a partner with God for the care of the world. And in Israel's story, when the founder was first asked to sacrifice a child— the original listeners would have thought, yeah, that tracks. That's what God's ask their human subjects to do. Although God does sometimes only speak an important message, a lot of the important messages God has for us come through action. That story is a full enactment. Abraham doing all he was supposed to do in worship, even offering his son Isaac, only to be interrupted by a God who never wants to see children offered as objects of so-called worship. And that's the point of the experience. The false prophets claiming to be God's messengers, they've offered false hope. And comfortable priests, representative of worship to God, have said, you're fine. Compromised worship works too. And the scholars, the experts in Torah, what about them? The experts in Torah are trusting extra writings that are untrue. Chapter 8, starting in verse 8, says, how can you say we are experts? Yahweh's teaching is with us actually, there, the false pen of the scholars has made it into falsehood. The experts have been shamed. They have shattered and been captured. There, they've rejected Yahweh's message. What expertise do they have? John Goldengay reminds us that although we don't know what form the Torah would have taken in Jeremiah's day, it seems that some version of Deuteronomy was available, But there probably would have also been extra teaching material floating around, even if it never made it into the official canon of Torah. This is similar to how there were other gospel accounts that were not canonized in the New Testament, or even how seminary professors write commentaries now. It's extra writing that is meant to be helpful, interpretive, and also true, but not in the same way as scripture. But what happens if some of that extra writing is not true and it offers false comfort, And your scholars tell you to listen to it. And this is all the more likely to happen in a culture where scholars have access to this limited resource and most people are subsistence farmers who do not have the means of pursuing their own independent study. The false prophets bring false hope. Comfortable priests facilitate compromised worship. And experts in Torah trust extra writings that are untrue. Chapter 8, verse 15 then summarizes really well for us. How all of this comes together and feels. The people were hoping for things to go well, but there was nothing good. They were hoping for things to go well, but there was nothing good. The substance of their life, their culture, their worship was wrong. They are walking down a path that leads to destruction. There's nothing good. Nevertheless, that doesn't stop them from being utterly convinced that things should go well for them and that God should be the one to ensure that it does. And perhaps we are so offended alongside them because our own false prophets and comfortable preachers and sneakers and celebrity Christians with book deals are promising us that we're okay. And these folks come in all leanings and persuasions, right to left, conservative to liberal. And we actually have the privilege of filtering and following until we have just the right mix of gurus to affirm our lives. And then we are stunned and resentful if God doesn't affirm them too. And this is where it's important to remember how Jeremiah also reveals God's anguish about all of this. Because God cannot change where the path ends. It ends where it ends. But God's heart is wrecked that people won't turn off it. And God cannot force people to walk a different path. But God grieves that reality deeply. Jeremiah 9 verse 1, God says, If only my head were water, my eye a fountain of tears, I'd weep day and night. This grief, it's the alternative for us as well. Instead of being stunned and resentful, we can open ourselves up to the anguish of the world, a world that we are at least somewhat complicit in creating. We can lament over the state of things. Walter Brueggemann comments that Jeremiah's representation of God's deep pain is actually where any future hope comes from. Because God's deep pain comes from God's deep love. And God's deep love is what births new possibility. To be stunned and resentful sets ourselves against a God that we feel entitled to keep things well, even if there's no good. But to lament aligns ourselves with the pain God feels in knowing that things are unsalvageable. And lament lets us say just how bad things have gotten and that we were a part of it. It lets us articulate hope for an alternative reality that seems completely impossible. Things are utterly destroyed. But maybe, just maybe, something new could come again someday? The next step for us in response to this passage will be a version of lament specifically modeled after the poetry of Jeremiah. So I'd encourage you to set aside some time to listen to the response episode, and to lament with God and see where God leads you in that time.